0: Hello. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Anglo-Saxon England podcast. If you enjoy this show, any support that you can give is greatly appreciated. You can do that through giving it a like, or a rating, or a review, or a subscribe, or whatever it is you use on whatever platform you use. Or you can become a patron over at Patreon, where for just $3 a month, you can get access to the new bonus series that I've started looking at Old English Culture and Old English Literature, as well as other benefits with more coming in the very near future. I would also like to take this opportunity to thank several of our newest patrons, so Wilfrith, Bruce Goodmanson, Adam Getzendanner, and George. Thank you very much for your support, I hope that you are enjoying the bonus content and that you will continue to support us into the future. It is all extremely appreciated, and I am incredibly grateful for every one of you who listens. What? I'm your host, Tom Kearns, and welcome to the Anglo-Saxon England podcast. Episode 26, The End of Mercia. This episode, we're going to be looking at the final 50 years of Mercian independence. It's a period in which the limits of our evidence for Mercian history really become incredibly apparent and often extremely frustrating, but from what little survives, we can scrounge together a general overview of events, even if it's an overview that isn't always as detailed as we would necessarily like it to be. In this episode, I want to offer such an overview, and set out some of the major themes that we see playing out in the final years of Mercia's history. As you'll see, probably the major theme is Mercia's shifting relationship with Wessex, in the wake of the Battle of Ellendon and Edgbert's rapid rise to supremacy south of the Humber both of which I talked about in the previous episode. In addition to the rise of Wessex, internal instability within Mercia and the intensification of Viking activity across 9th century England all led to the eventual disappearance of Mercia as an independent entity. At the end of this episode, I'll attempt to draw a lot of these disparate threads together to try and get some sense of what happened and why in the last 50 years of Mercian history. If you'll recall in the last episode, the Mercian supremacy collapsed in the wake of King Beornwulf's crushing defeat by the West Saxons at Ellendon in 825. In the wake of that battle, the various smaller kingdoms of southern England, such as Kent, Essex and Surrey, all turned to Edgbert, King of Wessex, for protection against the further Mercian attack. In 826, when East Anglia also requested Edgbert's help against Mercian threat, Beornwulf invaded his eastern neighbour, hoping to crush any potential rebellion. In the process, though, he was killed. Beornwulf was succeeded in Mercia as king by a man named Ludeca. The political situation during Ludeca's extremely brief reign seems to have been quite complicated. For example, although East Anglia had called to Egbert for support against the Mercians, it seems that Ludecker, even after Beowulf's death, still held some power in East Anglia as he continued to mint coins in Ipswich. An archaeological discovery in 2016 also demonstrated that Ludecker was still able to mint coins in London, showing that the city was still very much in Mercian hands in 826, despite Egbert's massive successes elsewhere in the south of England. It seems, though, that Ludecker was aware of how vulnerable his position was. In either 826 or 827, he attempted to invade East Anglia because, according to the later historian John of Worcester, he wanted to exact revenge for the death of Beowulf, although it's not clear what relation, if any, Ludecca had to his predecessor. It's just as, if not more likely, that he recognised the danger of Egbert and was, like Beowulf attempting to impose his rule on the East Anglians. As it happened, He also failed, and he was killed, along with five of his aldermen, in a devastating blow to a kingdom that was already in turmoil. That Mercia was definitely in turmoil at this point needs to be inferred from reading between the lines of the evidence. Probably the most interesting evidence for this comes from the names of the various kings who ruled for a few decades after Beowulf's death. Let me explain. Anglo-Saxons often alliterated their children's names. So, Kenwayal named his sons Cohenwolf and Chaillwolf, both names that began with C. It wasn't always the practice, but it did happen often enough to be notable and to be used frequently by historians. As a result, it is often possible to build family trees from men with names that begin with the same letter. In Mercian history, such trees can be seen in the various kings who ruled, leading historians to divide the kings of Mercia up into several different dynasties. It's important to remember that this is something done purely by historians, and it's more a way of neatly categorising the various kings of Mercia, rather than reflective of how Mercians at the time understood their politics. So the first major dynasty of Mercian history was the so-called P dynasty, beginning with Penda and including all of the kings up to Edgefrith, with the exception of Beornred, the man who ruled briefly after the murder of Athelbald before being deposed by Offa. Beornred is often listed as the first king of another dynasty, the so-called B dynasty, of which Beornwulf himself was also a member. There's also the C dynasty, beginning with Coenwulf. Ludeca, doesn't seem to have belonged to any of these dynasties, making him the first Mercian king to be without any previous family claims to the throne since King Cheol, who we talked about back in episode 18. The dynasties of Mercia were various noble families with enough power, often military power, to assume the throne when it became vacant, or whenever they felt like it, depending on how strong the current king was. For the bulk of Mercian history, this power lay exclusively with the men of the P and C dynasties, both of whom could trace their ancestry back to Penda, along either male or female lines. With the rise of Beornwulf and then Ludeca, the long-established dynasty's grip on power failed, and it seems unlikely to be coincidental that this also coincided with the collapse of the Mercian supremacy. These events indicate that Mercia, even before Ellendon, was suffering from internal instability, which must have weakened its ability to assert itself on the international stage. Something that only became worse following Ludecker's death and the death of his 5A alderman in 826. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. After Ludeca's death, a new king of unknown ancestry rose to the throne. We laugh. Spelt Wiglaf begins what historians call the W dynasty. Seemingly conscious that he lacked any clear blood claim to the throne, Wiglaf broken a marriage between his son Wigmund and Alflad, daughter of Chaelwolf, thus securing some legitimate claim to royal ancestry for his heirs. Wiglaf's reign consists of two parts. The first is not well documented at all and lasted from 827 to 829, when Edgbert invaded Mercia and drove Wilaf from the throne. However, Wilaf was back as King of Mercia by 830, exactly how he did this is a matter of debate. One possibility is that Edgbert restored Wilaf as a puppet king. The main evidence for this is that in the years after 830, Edgbert led successful campaigns against the Welsh and subjugated them, something that would suggest an unusual level of trust on the part of the Mercians, as Wessex now bordered them on all three sides except for the north. The other possibility is that Wilaf led a successful revolt against Edgbert and retook the Mercian throne. This case relies on his charters, all of which were issued after 830. In an 831 grant, Wilaf acknowledges the break in his rule by referring to the year as the quote, first of my second rule. End quote. In the other two surviving charters, from 833 and 836, respectively, Wilaf also grants land within Mercia without any reference to Egbert as his overlord, suggesting that he had indeed regained full independence as the ruler of Mercia. Unfortunately, we have very few coins from this period, so we have no hard evidence of the extent of Wilaf's power outside of Mercia. If you'll recall back to Ludecker, we can say that he still had some power in East Anglia and London because he was able to mint coins there, but we have no such evidence for Wilaf, which of course doesn't mean that he wasn't able to mint coins in London or elsewhere, only that those coins either haven't survived or haven't been found. But without them, the only sources we have for how his reign was understood comes directly from him in the form of his three charters, which inevitably reflect the view of his rule that he wanted to project, and which may not reflect the actual extent or nature of his kingship. That being said though, We can use the primary evidence we have to suggest that Wielaf and Edgbert came to some kind of agreement which allowed Wielaf to return as an independent ruler so long as he limited his activity to Mercian territory. Quite possibly this was a result of the increasing ferocity of Viking activity in England at this time. Edgbert had many problems to deal with without keeping Mercia under control. Or possibly Edgbert, who had been an exile in the Carolingian court prior to becoming king, relied on Frankish backing to fund his endeavours. If such backing was withdrawn around 830, then he may have been forced to withdraw, allowing Wielaf to retake the throne. Whatever the situation, the two kings seem to have tolerated each other until they both died, seemingly of natural causes, in 839. Wielaf's son, Wigmund, may have succeeded his father. The sources are extremely inconsistent on this but if so, then he didn't reign long and died, tradition says of dysentery, around the same time as his father. Weistan, Weelaf's grandson, and a descendant of Pender through his mother, never ruled Mercia, but he did follow Saint Kenelm, for his story, go back to the episode on Cohenwolf, in becoming a royal child saint due to his allegedly being murdered by a man named Feth. According to his legend, Wiestan was offered the throne of Mercia, but refused it on account of his being so young, reflecting biblical injunctions against kingdoms having child kings, and due to his wanting to become a monk. Beotferth wanted to marry Wiestan's mother, Alflat, but the young boy refused the match because Beotferð was a relative of Wigman's, and thus any marriage would be sinful. In rage, Beotferð killed the boy, and he became identified as a martyr for his piety and his preternatural understanding. The legends, unlike the story of Kenelm, don't really say what happened to Beortfeth, but his family doesn't seem to have suffered many consequences, since his father, Beortwulf, succeeded Wilaf as king, and with the death of Wistan, the short-lived W dynasty came to an end. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts! We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. The lack of consequences for the death of Wisdan, assuming of course that it actually happened, suggested that Beowulf possessed a strong enough support base that he was able to suppress any possible revolts. Evidence indicates that things initially went pretty well for Mercia under Beowulf. He restarted the minting of Mercian coins, certainly a sign of economic improvements in the kingdom. And these coins also indicate a new degree of cooperation between Mercia and Wessex, since at this time, both Beowulf and Athelwolf, the new king of Wessex, used the same money as to produce their coins. In the early years of both kings' reigns, the designs of their coins were almost identical but as time progressed, they began to diverge into new directions. The relations between Mercia and Wessex, then, seemed to have changed significantly with the death of Edgbert. While the supremacy was well and truly over, and West Saxon dominance south of the Humber was fairly secure, the peaceful cooperation between Beotwulf and Athelwulf indicate that a new phase in Mercian-West Saxon relations was beginning, which contrasted with the tension and often outright hostility that existed between Wessex and Mercia under Ludeca and Wielaf. Early in his reign, Beortwulf was secure enough on the southern border that he was able to revive the old Mercian pastime of invading Wales, and successfully ravaged Gwynedd around 844. However, signs of trouble to come began to emerge around 841, when Vikings invaded two parts of Mercia in quick succession, first Lindsay, situated in modern Lincolnshire, and then the trade capital of London. In London, according to the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, the Danes perpetrated a, quote, great slaughter, unquote, and left with an enormous quantity of coins. Perhaps as a result of the economic strain this caused, at some point after 844, Beortwulf lost the county of Berkshire, seeing it pass into West Saxon hands. Whether this was a peaceful occurrence is unknown, since it is based entirely on the fact that in 844 charters show that Berkshire was still a part of Mercia, but that around 847 it had become part of Wessex, since Alfred was born there in a royal residence in that year. The end of Beortwulf's reign came around 851, when a large Viking force landed on the island of Thanet, and having been bolstered by a second force of around 350 longships, stormed first Canterbury and then London, where they, according to the Anglo Saxon Chronicle, put Beowulf and his army to flight. Exactly what this means isn't entirely clear, but Beowulf's successor, Burgred, began his reign in 852, so it is supposed that Beowulf died either in the flight from London or shortly thereafter. This Burgred, probably like Beortwulf, also a member of the B dynasty, is mostly remembered for how his reign ended. As I said, it began around 852, and much like Beortwulf's, it was initially somewhat successful. In alliance with Athelwulf of Wessex, he put down a revolt among the Welsh. This successful campaign seemingly drew the two kings closer together, since in 853, Burgred married Athelwulf's only daughter, Athelswith. The union produced no children, but it does indicate the increasingly close bonds between Mercia and Wessex, a factor that would become extremely significant in a couple of decades' time. Jumping ahead to 865, and we have to do this really because we know very little about Burgred's reign, besides how it ended, in 865, the great heathen army of Vikings landed in East Anglia. This was the same army that captured York and ended Northumbrian independence in 867. For that, go back to the episode on the collapse of Northumbria. After this triumph, the army turned south and captured Nottingham, where they planned to camp through the winter. Probably out of fear of what had happened in Northumbria, Burgred and his brother-in-law Ethelred of Wessex besieged Nottingham in 868, but no battle ever took place, since the Mercians opted to make peace with the Scandinavians, probably indicating that they paid tribute to them. Mollified, the Great Heathen army marched back to York and then went into East Anglia to do some more raiding. In 871, it was reinforced by another influx of Scandinavians, referred to by historians as the Great Summer Army. This expanded force then ravaged the southeast of England before finally occupying London in the winter of 871 to 872. Burgred again paid them off. Again, they went to Northumbria and wintered there in 872 and 873. Like a similar policy of appeasement centuries later, Burgred's repeated yielding to the Scandinavians inspired them to take more and more each time, until finally, in 874, they marched right into the heart of Mercia and took up camp at Repton. Repton was one of the most important sites in Mercia, as the burial place of kings going back to Athelbald, and as the centre for the new cult of Wiestan. The site was thus wealthy, making it a tantalising opportunity for the Scandinavians, but the sheer affront of occupying it, to the Mercians' sense of pride, meant that this time, Burgred couldn't just pay off the invaders. He appealed to Wessex for help, but none was forthcoming, probably because Wessex was also dealing with an influx of Scandinavians at this time. In panic, and knowing that he could do nothing, Burgred chose to flee Mercia and went to Rome, where he died an unknown amount of time later. This left the throne of Mercia completely vacant, and according to the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, the Danes took upon themselves the opportunity of doing to Mercia what they'd done to Northumbria, that is, dividing it up, ruling some parts directly, and leaving others to be ruled by puppet kings. Although the Chronicle and no other sources directly say which parts of Mercia the Danes took direct control of, they probably directly ruled the northeastern parts, leaving the southwestern half of the country to their chosen puppet. This puppet was a man by the name of Cheolwulf, probably a member of the Sea Dynasty, who the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle presents as a foolish and power-hungry noble, willing to sell out Mercia for his own gain. However, this image is probably unjust. The Chronicle was written during the reign of King Alfred of Wessex, brother-in-law of Burgred, and husband to a Mercian wife. He would absorb Mercia into his new kingdom of the Anglo-Saxons after the removal of Cheolwulf in 879, Thus, he was keen to present his own actions as legitimate, and the best way to do this was by casting Chaillewulf in a negative light. From the scant evidence that survives outside of the Chronicle, the image is far more complex. The Thangs and aeldomen who ruled under Chaillewulf had mostly ruled also under Burgred, indicating that there was a certain amount of continuity between Burgred's and Chaillewulf's courts. Around 878, Chaolwulf also seems to have been secure enough to invade Wales, and was able to kill King Rodri Mawr of Gwynedd, indicating that for him, things probably were continuing much as they always had in Mercia. Certainly, he didn't seem to be just some lackey for the Danes. Perhaps the most interesting evidence that the Chronicle's account of Chaolwulf is unreliable comes from coinage. The coinage of Chaolwulf II indicates that Wessex, and what remained of Mercia, were closely united both Chaolwulf and Alfred minted a type of coin referred to in the literature as the cross and lozenge type for its distinctive decoration. An even more striking example of the close bond between Chaolwulf and Alfred was uncovered in 2015, when metal detectorists discovered a hoard of gold at Watlington in Oxfordshire. In this hoard, thought to have been buried by retreating Vikings in the 870s, were found gold coins, some minted by Chailwolf and some minted by Alfred, which depicted on their reverse sides the same image of the two men as co-emperors, using iconography drawn from coins of the later Roman Empire. These coins explode the idea that Chaolwulf was just a puppet of the Danes. Rather, these two coins demonstrate that both Chaolwulf and Alfred understood themselves to be the last two independent kings standing in Anglo-Saxon England. Thus, they regarded each other as equals and must have cooperated economically to produce these coins, they also suggest that the two cooperated on many other matters, and that culturally and politically, Wessex and Mercia at this point saw themselves as standing against a common enemy. So, despite what the Chronicle said... Chaolwulf acted as an independent king in the mould that had become established since the death of Edgbert. He pursued his own policies in Wales and elsewhere, while also cooperating with Wessex in a manner suggesting a close alliance. Importantly, as the two Emperor-type coins indicate, Mercia and Chaolwulf was not a puppet of Wessex. Rather, Wessex and Mercia were equals, in a mutually beneficial partnership. Chaolwulf died or was deposed, around 879, in thoroughly mysterious circumstances. For the period between 879 and 881, we know nothing about Mercia. The next definite date we have is 881, when a new king, Æthelred, launched a devastatingly botched campaign in Wales. Æthelred's court was staffed almost entirely by new men, suggesting that something had wiped out the Thang's and the of Chaolwulf's day, probably along with Chaolwulf himself. In response to the failed Welsh adventure, Ethelred took a radical step to secure his throne. He submitted himself as a subject to King Alfred. The agreement was formalised later that same year by the marriage of Ethelred to King Alfred's daughter Athelflaed, and with this Ethelred went from being King of the Mercians to Lord of the Mercians, and Mercia ceased to exist entirely as an independent kingdom, and instead became part of an entirely new entity, the Kingdom of the Anglo-Saxons. The news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily. So let's take a step back and consider what caused the end of Mercy and Independence in 881. It was a mix of things. The end of Mercy and Independence was not necessarily an inevitable result of the end of the Mercian supremacy. While Egbert undid much that older Mercian kings had built, the return to independence of Wylaf suggests that Mercia could have rebuilt its strength if it had been given time. Even the ongoing dynastic fluctuations didn't necessarily doom Mercia, since Beowulf’s reign was strikingly successful in earlier stages, suggesting that he could have built something more long-lasting if it wasn't for the intervention of the Danes. It might be countered that Beowulf began the policy of closer cooperation with Wessex that ultimately led to Mercia's absorption into the kingdom to the south. But that is to assume that ever closer union is inevitable. Marriage alliances and cooperation were mutually beneficial, and thus were standard practices in Anglo-Saxon politics and while Beowulf initiated initiates the new phase in Mercian-West Saxon relations, to say that this was inevitably the groundwork for the end of Mercian independence ignores the reality of history, in which such shifting bonds were common, and brought with them no obligation of anything more. The Danes are of course the main factor that sets the 870s apart, and they undoubtedly played a major role in the end of Mercian independence, but they were not the only factor. Rather, this, as with all historical events, was the result of diverse and impersonal forces of cause and effect spiced up with a bit of free will thrown in for good measure. The results were in no way inevitable, but it is also true that the seeds of what happened in 881 were planted long before, and all we can do is look at the countless ways they germinated to produce the overall impression that we call history. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Anglo-Saxon England podcast. Next time, we will go back in time to begin our look at the third of the big three Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, namely Wessex. Once we've followed that story from its beginning up to Alfred's creation of the Kingdom of the Anglo-Saxons, we'll then loop back around to look at the smaller kingdoms of Anglo-Saxon England, whose histories only really make sense if you are fully aware of the history of Northumbria, Mercia, and Wessex. Once that's done, we'll be able to get into the emergence of the Kingdom of England and the always fun subject of Vikings in a lot more detail. I hope you will stay around for that. If you do, I'd again like to ask that you leave a like, comment, subscribe or rating or review on whatever software you use to listen to this. Also that you'll consider supporting our Patreon where you'll get access to the new bonus series looking at a lot more Old English literature and Anglo-Saxon cultural history. It's extremely interesting and I think a great compliment to this main series, so I hope you'll come and give it a look but that's enough from me. Once again, thank you for listening. I've been your host, Tom Kearns, and this has been the Anglo-Saxon England podcast.